Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. John Worth, I'm here. It is this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast. Our guest this week is Mark Knowles. Mark, you know, is a doubles player who won more than 700 matches on the ATP Tour over more than 20 years of uh, playing the circuit. He is a coach. He's now a new board rep on the player side representing the Americas. But uh, we are going to talk a lot this week about his work in the Bahamas during the U.S. Open a few weeks ago, Hurricane Dorian Ran through his island, and uh, now Mark is helping in some of the uh, some of the rebuilding efforts. The Bahamar Cup is going on this week that Mark is hosting. Andy Roddick, James Blake, Coco Goff among those in attendance. So we talk a bit about his unlikely tennis backstory in the Bahamas. Talk a bit about coaching, his new role on the ATP board. Good conversation with one of the uh, one of the good guys of tennis. Here's Mark Knowles. Where where are you? I just flew to the Bahamas yesterday. I have my big uh, fundraiser starting on Friday. That's uh, that's what I wanted to ask you about. We uh, big big weekend for you. Yeah, big weekend. Exciting. How uh, how how are things on the ground? Uh, you know, I mean, Nassau. You can't tell. I mean, obviously, Nassau wasn't affected. Unfortunately, you know, Northern Bahamas, Abaco, Freeport. Not much has changed. I mean, it's been a lot of work, but it's just going to take a long time. How, how personally? Know. How personally did you feel this uh, destruction? Um, pretty personally, because my sister actually lived in Abaco. So unfortunately, she lost her entire business, got completely wiped out because the island that she operated her business on, I think of the 400 structures there were, there were probably eight standing. So, I mean, the the island got completely wiped out. And also my stepfather had a hotel on that same island that got completely destroyed. So, you know, the good news is everybody was safe. But yeah, there was some devastation for sure. I was thinking that I remember that coincided with the U.S. Open. Yeah, exactly. So, were, were you experiencing that from from New York? Yeah, that was tough. You know, it was weird being up there doing TV at the U.S. Open, and you know, you're obviously connected to everybody back home, and it's kind of a helpless feeling because you know what's going on, but you can't really help. And um, you know, it's 
that was really a tough, kind of a tough time. Um, you know, I, I think it's the same for everybody when, when tragedy is happening, either in the area where you're from or to people that you care about, you know, you want to be, you want to be as close as possible to see if you can help. Obviously there's not much you can do, but you just feel a little bit disconnected. You are, you're doing a lot this weekend. This is, uh, yeah. The, I, I, we'll, we'll put a link on, on the show page to the, um, to the Bob Markup. How, how do these things, I, I'm sort of curious. I mean, you talk, talk a little bit about the, the goals and the objectives, but I'm, I'm curious how these things come about. I mean, do you sort of start working your, your contacts and trying to set this up? Does this, I, I'm, I'm curious how these sort of form and formulate the events like this. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how this one actually came about because Baja Mara had approached me over the summer because they're, they're big in giving back to community and they have a Baja Mara Foundation, which gives back to, you know, the local communities uh, being the people of the Bahamas. And so they had approached me earlier in the summer about doing an event. Um, and then unfortunately, you know, Hurricane Dorian hit and then everything shifted to, you know, we're going to go 100 percent of the proceeds directly to Hurricane Dorian relief. And, you know, it kind of a no-brainer obviously we just kind of this was like okay this will be our launch this will be our event um they have a great uh tennis club here at Baja Mar so they're really big into tennis so it was a nice fit right from the start they wanted to have a, a tennis centered event um and so obviously you know as you know one thing about the tennis community it's such a close-knit uh group of people um mm -hmm. you know obviously being up in New York during this this tough time Obviously, I heard from everybody. Um, you know, most people associate the Bahamas with myself. And, you know, it, it's amazing how many people reach out, how many people care. And, you know, I've, I've experienced it throughout my entire career, um, kind of the philanthropic um, kind of motivation that a lot of players have. You know, obviously started with Andre Agassi and then Roddick had his own foundation. I had my own foundation. You know, the list goes on. There's a lot of guys that give back. And, uh, you know, it's the same uh, once everything hit. I remember Andy Roddick texted me right away. He goes, you let me know what I can do. I'll be there in a second. And, you know, once this event came together, he's like, I'll be there. Um, you know, so it, it's great things like that, that kind of makes you proud to have been a tennis player and, and to be part of this community because, you know, you compete against each other for so long. It's such an individualized world. Um, you know, and you have to be fairly selfish out there for a long time, but at the end of the day, there's such a strong respect, um, amongst tennis players and especially um, when they're hard times, tennis players come together to, to support any initiative. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you something else that strikes me. You, you mentioned Andy and Andre, and I, I know James is going. Um, but you also, this, this lesson seems to be ingrained pretty early. There's, there's a 15-year-old uh, who, who has quite a bit of celebrity, yeah. he, celebrity heat right now who uh, I, I see is on the list as well. How, how did you, uh, how'd this come about with, with Coco Goff? Yeah, I mean, that's exciting. It's almost like the, the, the stars kind of aligned when we had secured Coco Golf. There's also a gentleman named Steve Webster who's helping us um, getting some people. And he had spoken to Coco's management team. I had spoken to Tony Godsick. And, um, you know, they were thrilled uh, right away. And I remember actually, you know, I used to have my own foundation events for 13 straight years. And, you know, it's a good time to get those young superstars. I remember I used to have Nicole Vadiasova, to name a few. Um, where, you know, they can't play a lot of tennis. They want to they kind of get exposed and be out there and do fun things. And, you know, I have not gotten to meet Coco Golf personally yet, but every single person that's met her, you know, speaks volumes. She's such an incredible person and hard to believe that she's 15 years old. So 
you know, it was really exciting because once she committed, I think she she won her first tour event the very next week, um, coming well, through as a lucky well loser. Done, so well that done. that worked out really well. And you know, we're as thrilled as we are to have such an amazing lineup. Uh, we're even more thrilled to have Coco Goff. You know, obviously, who's kind of the next sensation in tennis. That uh, that, that is a good get. But no, I, I think to your point, uh, that's that, that's a great sign that a 15 year old in, in a very busy off season, I suspect, is doing something philanthropic like this and also something tennis related like this yeah it's, it's very special you know i mean obviously like you said you, when you're that young you're focused a lot on tennis and whatever but she obviously has the right people around her that and it's important to try as try to be as as well-rounded as possible as a tennis player as you know um they can get very insulated and uh also isolated so it's nice to to be able to kind of spread your wings a little bit so we're, we're thrilled to have coco golf you, you know so someone wrote me uh you know, I do I do this sort of mailbag, and I get all sorts of wacky questions. And someone asked me, and I don't know, I don't think I think I answered it. Uh, if you were, if you, if Mark Knowles was related to, uh, I think it's an Olympic sailor from the Bahamas. Yes, it, it Sir, Dur- to me, I, Sir Derwood Knowles. I was, is that well? I mean, but the broader question is just I, I don't know much about it. T- tell us about your backstory and sort of what what your folks did, and you were born and raised in the yeah, Bahamas. My, what, what's my your story mom there? is British originally, and she was a tennis player. Actually, she played at Wimbledon. Um, and my dad's from the Bahamas originally, so uh, my mom was on vacation, kind of cruising. She was on her way to San Francisco, stopped in the Bahamas, and that was that was the end of that story. She met my dad, and uh, obviously fell in love with the weather and the people here in the Bahamas. And you know, myself along with my brother and my sister were the fortunate ones. We were we were born in the Bahamas. We got to grow up here, beautiful place. Um, you know, so I was exposed to tennis from a very young age because my parents taught tennis at a at a local tennis club and. You know, I was one of those kids. I just fell in love with tennis. I think I started playing when I was three years old. I used to just go down. You know, there's long stories about how there was this little blonde kid that would just go down to the last court where there was a hitting wall. And I literally would hit there all day. They didn't have to worry where I was. And, um, you know, as you know, the wall never misses. So those were some long rallies. Um, And, you know, that's how it started for me. I fell in love with the game of tennis from a young age. I was never forced. My parents, I was just around it. I was exposed to it. they did a great job back. That was back in the 70s, um, aging myself a little bit here. But, you know, they did a great job. They had a huge uh, lot of kids played tennis. They had some great junior programs. So it was kind of the thing to do back in the 70s. So, you know, it was fun for me because I was also with my friends a lot. And you don't feel like you're really working or, or dedicating yourself to a certain sport. You're having a lot of fun while while doing some sports. And, you know, from there, I was fortunate. I was playing the Orange Bowl, I believe, when I was nine years old over in Florida. And the great Nick Volatari saw me playing over there. Uh, you know, I thought I was a very talented kid. And he offered me a full scholarship to attend the Nick Volatari Tennis Academy. And, uh, you know, I went there the following year when I was 10 years of age. So, obviously, that's where my tennis really took off. Um, I was one of the first guys to get there. But then, obviously, Jim Courier joined me there. Andre Agassi, the list goes on. And, uh, you know, it was such a great, such a great environment uh, for your tennis, and that's really when my tennis took off. Were, were there any uh, questions about relocating somewhere other than the Bahamas when you were done playing, or, or was this always this was always the ambition? Yeah, you know, Bahamas is always going to be home for me. Um, you know, we spent some time in Dallas as well with my wife and, and our kids, um, but we love it here. This is where my my family's still here. Um, my mom and dad, my brother and sister. Um, this is home, and I think it'll, it'll always be home. We, we love it here. Um, and, you know, we're fortunate to get to travel and to go other places. So, uh, you know, we consider ourselves very fortunate. So, wait, the, the, the Olympic uh, the Olympic sailor was, yeah. was family. 
So, no, he wasn't actually. Um, but uh, a common little fact that people don't realize, and, and when you visit the Bahamas, it's funny, the Knowles is probably the most common last name. So when you go around the Bahamas, you see the name Knowles everywhere. So it's really funny because I remember when I was in, in school at UCLA, some of my friends came to the Bahamas and like, you must be the richest guy in the world. Like your name is everywhere there. <laughs> no, unfortunately that's not my name. So it's just a very common name. Obviously I, I knew Sir Derwood very well. He's, you know, one of the first athletes to secure Olympic medal. Um, he's a legend over here. Um, so, but no, no direct relation. I did. You're, you're like the, uh, you're like the parks of uh, South Korea. Um, let, let me ask you, it's, yeah. um, it's November, whatever it is, November 16th, uh, Thanks, Jamie. Um, mid- middle of November, and, and what do we always hear? It's it's the the season's winding down, and people are pl- players are getting tired, and we're, we're sort of playing out the string here. W- what is it really like at this stage in the year? I mean, is it is it a physical fatigue? Is it the last you know five miles of the marathon? Is, is it emotional? Is it spiritual? What what is this period of the year really like for players? As often as we hear, everyone's tired. I think there's a combination of mental and physical, but I think by far it's mental fatigue. Um, and it's interesting. I, I read one of your mailbags recently uh, about this this um, this actual discussion, and it's so true. When you see guys still playing exhibitions or you know some type of promotional events, it's different, right? You're so relaxed. It's not competitive. You don't have to be ready the next day to play again. Um, you know, just the, I think the grind of the full year of the mental focus that it takes to know that you always have to bring your best day in, day out, it just wears you down. You know, when you get to the end of the year, it's, you are so excited to just kind of put your feet up and not have to feel that, that kind of emotional stress. Um, so I would say mostly it's mental fatigue. Obviously the body's broken down, but you know, most players can get through that. Most players know how to deal with, you know, lingering injuries and so forth, but it's the mental fatigue by the end of the year where players are just, you know, they're, they're just beat up pretty badly. So um, I think that's the important thing. And, you know, you always hear about trying to shorten the season and, you know, then you hear the other side, well, they're playing exhibitions. I don't understand, but you know, exhibitions are so much lighter on not just the body, but the mind more importantly. So, um, you know, I think it'll always be a constant struggle to try to find the, the right perfect amount of weeks for the year. It's, it's tough because we have a long season. Um, and it's just natural because, you know, these guys, these guys are getting better and better. Right. So it, there's no easy matches anymore. You've got to be fully focused. Right. And I just think it takes its, its kind of uh, emotional toll by the end of the year. What is it about exhibitions that make them so different from conventional? Well, I, I think, you know, first of all, you take away the stress. Right. I mean, you, it doesn't really matter winning or losing. It doesn't really matter how you play, per se. You're relaxed, you know everybody's a great player. So when they're relaxed, they're going to play great tennis probably regardless. So, you know, that's going to be taken care of. Um, you know, there's some smiling. It's just, it's a much different emotional temperature um, compared to the, the week in, week out grind of the tour. So, um, you know, I think it's refreshing. I think it's, it's a nice change of pace for a lot of players. This was a, uh, this was a busy fall for you, apart from, yeah. uh, apart from organizing uh, a, a fundraising event. You, you are the... Uh... I guess your your term probably starts January first, I assume. But you're the uh, you're, you're the new America's board rep on the ATP uh, on the ATP board, the new player. Yeah, rep. yeah, I'm I'm excited. Uh, my my term starts next year, but obviously I'm going to kick into high gear next week. I'm going to go over to London, 
participate in all the meetings and, you know, just try to hit the ground running. Uh, I think it's a, it's a pivotal time, especially on the men's game. Obviously, you know, there's a lot of transition. Um, you know, now that we have a chairman and looking for a CEO, we've kind of divided those duties, whereas it was combined before. Um, you know, that's quite pivotal, trying to secure the next CEO. Uh, you know, and also I think, you know, I have a three-year term. So over the next couple of years, there's going to be a huge transition, you know, when we talk about the big three, um, right. three greatest of all time. You know, how long are they going to play? How do we set the game up for for when they're not out there, you know, displaying their, their greatness for us. Um, you know, so there are a lot of things, and I, I look forward to the challenge. Obviously, I've, I've been around the game a very long time. I uh, feel like I have a lot of knowledge that I can kind of lend, and, you know, I'm excited I'm excited for the challenge. I, I think it's it's going to be a challenging role, um, but it's one it's one that I really think that I, I can give my best at. Wait, give, give us some highlights from the, uh, from the camp's campaign speech. I mean, what, what are, uh, I, I think you're absolutely right. And for, for a variety of reasons, these next three years are going to be very interesting. Um, we, we all love the big three, but you know, their, their combined age, I think, uh, exceeds a hundred now. So, um, <laughs> yeah. what, uh, I mean, what, what's, what's on the agenda? What do, what do you see? What, well, what, I, what I you think, you know, I, I think what I've seen kind of being around the inner side over the last six to seven months or so, obviously it's very fractured. Um, a lot of different agendas. And, you know, when I was playing on tour, I was the vice president of the player council for two terms. So, you know, I know what it's like on the inside there and I know what's important. You know, you've got to be on the same page. Communication has got to be important right from the top all the way down to the players. Um, and that, that responsibility lies obviously with the player council, but especially with the player board, just to make sure that there's, you know, the communication is very clear. Um, I think we have to be, I think, in, in seeing what the problems were over the last six, eight months, you know, it was so fractured. It was not a united front at all coming from the player council, from the player board. And I think we need to get back to that, right? It, we, we can agree to disagree. That's always going to happen. That's part of life. We're, we all come from different cultures. We all have different views. Um, but once you leave the boardroom, you leave with the same message, regardless of, you know, whether you agreed with the opinion or disagreed with it, um, you know, I, I spent a long time on the Save the Doubles campaign. I was kind of the lead guy when they wanted to eliminate doubles. So, you know, I know what it's like. You've, you've got to go in. You've got to fight the battles. Uh, you know, you have tough conversations, whether it be with tournament directors, um, whether it be with your fellow players. You know, it's important to be, I think it's important to be very honest, very upfront. Um, try to make sure you're not having your kind of your own personal agendas. We're, we're thinking for the betterment of the game, the long term. Uh, benefit of the game that's important it's not easy to do like I said you're, you're talking about a mindset as a tennis player where you, you have to be extremely selfish because that's the way it is you're playing against your opponent your opponent wants what you have you want what your opponent wants to take from you so you know you have this mentality but yet all of a sudden when you're on the council or you're on the board that becomes secondary you have to kind of push that to the side it, it's for it's for the betterment of all, which is, you know, that's not your mindset as a tennis player. So, you know, that's a challenge. And, you know, I think education is big. I think a lot of times the players don't have the full story when, you know, when they maybe hit the social media platforms and then it creates a negative buzz. Um, and that falls upon, starts probably with the player board relaying to the player council and then them relaying to the players to make sure that, you know, whatever their grievances are, they're fully informed. Um, so they come up with an educate, educated opinion rather than so many times I see it, it's really just a quarter or half of the story, not understanding the full ramifications of the story or why this decision was made. So, 
you know, to, to make a long story short, I think, obviously, as I said, I think communication and making sure that we're as clairvoyant as possible with the players is going to be very important. And uh, I think at the end of the day, you have to realize that, you know, because of the structure of the ATP with three player board reps, three, three tournament board reps, sure, of course, they're not always going to see eye to eye. Majority of the time, they're not. But we're all working for the same thing, for our sport to be greater. Um, so we, we've got to figure out that balance, which I think is very important. Does, does the um, does does the player board reps? Do you have a position on the this Toronto law firm that the number of players have engaged? You know, I like I said, unfortunately, I'm just kind of coming into it, so I'll, I'll be a lot more educated, especially next week being there. Um, that's kind of why I'm going to London to be there for five days for all the meetings to really kind of be up to speed on all the issues. I'm really not informed uh, very well on that issue, so. I, I right. probably couldn't we'll, speak uh, to it right now. We'll check back with you. But, but this, is, this is a three-year term that starts. I mean, this is the the, the seat that Justin Gimelstam had occupied and then Weller Evans. This is the America's seat. Exactly, and yeah. This, this was a, a three-year term. Um, yeah. All right, let me uh, – I'll ask you, you – you, we'll do speed round. You are uh, – your, your event is the, the Bahamar Cup, yep. November 7th uh, to 10th. But I want to – how many cups – Cups are very popular in tennis right now. <laughs> yeah, how, many, uh, how, how many cups uh, can, can this sport sustain? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. I mean, it's going to be – this is a really interesting couple of months coming up with, you know, Davis Cup, obviously, the new format. I'm, I'm very curious just to see how it all goes down. And then, obviously, just a month later, the ATP Cup. You know, I mean, I, I think, like I said, I'm going I'm to have to become a lot more educated on all these issues. But, you know – I think right at the onset, it's going to be hard for both of those two events to survive independently. I think there's going to have to be, you know, we're going to have to look at some solutions. Um, obviously, the Labor Cup has done exceptionally well. They have terrific dates. Um, you know, I, I think that's looked very positive. But, you know, as, as you mentioned, I think there's got to be a balance. Obviously, I think that you're seeing the different type of format. You know, the tough thing about tennis is such a traditional sport, as you know so well, John. It, it's tough to change traditional sports, right? And, you know, whether it's from scoring, you know, I remember changing the, the scoring in doubles and, you know, it was like crazy to play a match tiebreak to decide a set. And, you know, but basically at the end of the day, you know, over time comes change. And, you know, I think we're seeing with the success of Labor Cup, people enjoy these special events, kind of a different format. Um, you know, it'll be interesting, This, like I said, this condensed format for the Davis Cup. Um, obviously, complaints right from the start about not having home ties. You know, all the all the apparent things that are going to be different. Right. But it's going to be a unique setting. And, you know, let's see let's see how it works. Uh, the shortened format and, and these types of things. Um, you know, I think it's important to see how it plays out. And then we'll have the ATP Cup, like I said, just on its heels about a month later. Um so it's going to be interesting because it's going to be hard, obviously, for the top players to play both in that short that short period, especially when you talk about kind of bookending the off season. Um, right. So you know, there's going to be things, but I, but I think there is, I think there is, uh, you know, room for these types of events. Uh, obviously, not too many because um, then you you take away from the tour. But I think there's a competitive balance there that hopefully we can find. You're entire too. You're you're entirely too moderate and uh, and rational. Um, what uh, are, are you still? What does this do to your coaching uh, obligations or duties? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I obviously part of the reason I applied for the board position was I want to take a break from coaching. Uh, I, I really enjoy coaching. You know, the toughest part about coaching, obviously, is the travel. That's not something right. I'm that interested in. And, you know, it, it's unique situations where it can work. And I, I had some nice situations where, you know, with Milos, I only had to commit a certain amount of weeks and it worked perfectly with television. Um, and same with Jack, um, you know, unfortunately, Jack got injured and, and that got shortened. But, um, you know, it's just something I wanted to kind of put on the back burner for a while. I'm not, not necessarily interested in coaching. What uh, you, you mentioned Jack. What, what does he have to do to get back? I mean, what, wh where is this train right now? Yeah, I mean, that's, an, that's a very interesting question. I, I haven't spoken to him in a long time. Um, you know, it's, uh, I don't think we've ever seen anything like it, really. It's, it's, it's hard to see for me, personally, because, you know, having worked with him a little bit, Having known him, you know, I played against him as a player as well. But, uh, you know, having worked with him and I have tremendous respect for the amount of ability he has. He's a, he, he can be a tremendous player, as we've seen in the past. He's got he's got the skill set that, you know, should have him, you know, close to amongst the top players in the world. But unfortunately, you know, he's he's far from that right now. And he's going to have you know, he's going to have some tough choices to make. Obviously, he's you know, he's um, dropped really far down in the singles. He's still got, you know still arguably the greatest doubles player out there right now. He plays, you know, an exceptional game of doubles, but having known him, I know that's not something he wanted to be necessarily. He didn't want to necessarily be just a doubles guy this early in his career. So, right. um, you know, but because of where his singles is, he's going to have some tough choices. You know, I just hope for his case, um, I just hope he gives himself a legitimate chance to come back and, and see where his ability is, because I, I think he has a lot of ability and, you know, I think one thing that's important, and you know this, John, you cover the sport a lot, is that, you know, we get so caught up in how somebody hits forehands or backhands. But, you know, Jack's probably a good story amongst many others where there's just so much more that goes into the game of tennis when you're when you talk about computing and figuring out how successful they're going to be. And, um, you know, it's it's not that easy. Right. And that's probably what speaks even more volumes for the big three, um, not just how great that's they play, point. but how yeah, they've been yeah. able to sustain their motivation, their professionalism. And that's why, in my opinion, we will never see three players like this ever again. Um, we may see three players of the same generation that play equally as well, but they will never have the combination of skill, professionalism, motivation that these guys have shown. It's just remarkable because um, it's not that easy, right? And, and for, that, for those people that don't necessarily know tennis and are looking from the outside. They're like, oh, these three guys just dominate everything, you know, right, it's so right. easy. But, you know, they make it look easy, but they know it's not easy because they work, they work extremely hard. They make the right decisions, you know. You know, it goes down to even with Roger pulling out of Paris Masters, right? He continues to make the right decisions for his body. Um, same with Rafa, you know, they pull out at difficult moments, but they, they're doing, they're thinking long term and, you know, their body of work will never be matched. No, I, I think that's a really good point. That you, we, we have a lot of uh, a, a lot of indications of how fragile this can be, and it's yeah. Andy Murray's hip. But you know, I mean, J Jack Sock does not have a ranking, and it's Del Potro. When these guys are consistently in the top three over fifteen years, um, that that says as much to me as the the Grand Slam tally. Um, this uh, this was great. I, I I would I would say I got to point this out. Um, the I think the one and only time I was in the Bahamas, I got off the plane, and the first thing I saw was a uh, a photo of you on the wall outside my gate. So you you may travel nice. a lot, but at least, at least you get to see uh, the Mark Knowles Hall of Fame wall 
when you walk to pick up your bag. Uh, but that, yeah, that gives some indication of your profile in the Bahamas as well. Yeah, it's still an honor for me. It's obviously very cool, especially with my kids. You know, every time we come back home, they, they stop and kind of look at it. They'll take occasional pictures. So, you know, it's, a, it's obviously a lot of fun. And it's been, it's been an honor to represent the Bahamas. Obviously, we're a very small country, and, you know, we've achieved a lot um, on the athletic scene. And a, and a lot of that has come through me and tennis. And, you know, I've been proud to represent this great country. One of the many Knowles of the Bahamas, the one and only Mark Knowles. Um, this is great. We'll uh, we'll put a link to the uh, to the event this weekend. Um, and if there, awesome. I, don't, I don't know if there's a silent auction, or if there are other ways for people to contribute, even if they're not on site. Um, let me know about that too. Okay, I will. Perfect. Thanks, John. Thanks for your time. I'm right. honored to Likewise. finally make it on, man. Oh, come Appreciate on. It. Pleasure. Likewise. We'll see you down the road. All right, buddy. All, right, see All you, the buddy. best, man. All right, you take too. care. All right, thanks to Mark for uh, for stopping by, spending some time. Uh, thanks, as always, to Jamie for her sorcery producing. Uh, Jamie, I have a question for you. Did you ever read the David Foster Wallace essay, great piece of tennis writing, String Theory? Uh, I think I think you made me read it back in the day. I made you read that? I think so. Oh, good. Um, I'm glad I did that. I don't recall that, but I'm glad I did. No, I that was my first. I, I bring that up because that, that, I think, may have been when Mark Knowles first crossed my radar. He has one of the great quotes of that story and a quote that I uh, use all the time. I don't know if you remember that. He was qualifying for the event uh, in Montreal and they were still hammering bleachers together and testing out the PA system and he said, you know, it's all right. We're just playing tennis for money here. Don't don't mind us. We're just professional athletes trying to compete on a, on a tour. I always remember that early in, in sporting events when people are actually playing and uh, other people aren't courteous. Um, anyway, that was that was my uh, I think that was when Mark Knowles may have first crossed my radar, but he had a absolutely tremendous career and um, one of the good people. I I feel like I say that a lot. This this sport, for all of its flaws, really has a vast a cohort of of, uh, of good good men and women. But Mark is is certainly um, among them. Um, I, I like what he said too. I, I don't know if that struck you about t- tennis. Obviously, has this this gladi gladiatorial gladiatorial. Check that. Um, you know, te- te- tennis has this one-on-one nature, and and you know, there's only one winner at the end, and everyone's sort of competing with each other. But there also is a sense of community, and we see that um, a-, a lot in these cases of philanthropy. Fall, yeah. fall is sort of the season for philanthropy too in this sport. Yeah, I kind of like when he said about, um, you know, that you spend your whole career very sticking to yourself, and it's a very individualized thing. We talk about that a lot as the in, in tennis as compared to team sports. So. Uh, it's nice to, as you say, hear people come together for good causes, but then just generally have people, um, you know, throw aside competition sometimes and just sort of uh, use the team spirit to boost their personal game, boost the sport, uh, everything. So Yeah, I think I think that also dovetails with what he was saying about the ATP Tour. And look, there are interests that aren't always aligned, especially between players and tournaments, but but among players you know, everybody wants the, the biggest check in the, the trophy at the end of the week. But there also that has to coexist with this idea that you are trying to grow the enterprise here. And you may be on the other side of the net for me. And you and I may differ on how to split revenues that come in. But we're all going to benefit if, if the cliche alert, if the, if the pie gets bigger, if the rising, what is it? Rising tide lifts the boats, whatever the whatever the cliche is. But it's an interesting sort of individual collective dynamic in this sport. I also uh, you you wrote about or was asked you were asked about exhibitions and um, you know the 
how many there are nowadays and how sort of that impacts players. And I thought Mark's answer uh, was really smart about mental health. I Mm -hmm. think it's something Mm -hmm. we kind of forget, but if you're able to just be in your workplace, but kind of just hang out, maybe it it relieves a little bit of stress. And I think uh, that's an important thing we probably don't remember is that it may not always be like I like what he said about these are all great players. So if they uh, they turn it off a little bit, uh, they're still going to be good tennis and they're still going to get something out of it. So, um, yeah, that that was this question about how do these these players all bitch about how long the season is. And then as soon as the season's over, they go and play exhibitions. Isn't that inconsistent? Isn't that hypocritical? And I think Mark's point was really good. I mean, first of all, that just physically you can go at 80% in exhibitions and nobody's losing sleep over a loss. But I think the mental side, it's really stressful to play in a tournament and they're ball kids and they're ranking points on the line and you don't know when your next match is. And, oh, I play Lasanti in the next round, but she's got to beat the other guy. I'm going to keep an eye on that match. Mm-hmm. They're uncertain starting times. I've got to find out if my hotel does laundry. And if I win, I've got to rebook my ticket. I mean, exhibitions have none of that. So right. it's none of the physical stress, but also you know when you're going to play, you know who your opponent is, you don't have to worry that the ranking points are going to come off. Um, can I make a segue as long as we are both talking about ranking points? Sure. So when, when uh, Mark was talking, I wanted to see if there had been any sort of formal announcement about whether he's still working with Jack Sock. Um, Jack Sock, ranking? A- N slash A. Does not exist. Jack Sock does not have an ATP singles ranking right now. It's uh, it's it's crazy. I've never. I mean, two, so two years ago, just to level set, almost two years ago to the day. Yeah, really. I was going to say to the week, whatever. To, so mid November, <laughs> mid mid November, twenty seventeen. Jack Sock is a top ten player. And I mean, we're talking like we talked about this last week, but fall season. You know, he's going to take a month off, come back in January. Wow, what a great twenty eighteen right. Jack Sock can have. He can ride this wave. I've never seen anything like. I mean, I think Mark said the same thing. I mean, I. I you know, we, we've seen players slip and their injuries. And, you know, Andre Agassi famously was outside the top 100 before he had that comeback. This is a whole different level. I think we should caveat that he did have a very good 2018 in doubles. Yes. Um. So sure. I think aside, you know, he didn't fall off, fall off the face of the earth and, and, you know, become no longer good at tennis overall. I mean, it's, it's his singles ranking uh, doesn't exist. I mean, his doubles ranking is is. 121, which isn't great, but at least it's a number. Right. Uh, and I, I think that's probably just a function of his not playing all that many events. Right. But, but I mean, he, if you look at his, uh, it's its remarkable trying to, to figure out where the drop off is. And honestly, there's really no point where you're like, oh, maybe that loss did it. It, uh, it just seemed like he lost in the first round at the Australian Open. And then as, as the weeks went on, it just was first round loss after first round loss and then this after that something. he started playing in some challengers um, and then was losing in the challengers yeah i'm looking here he, he's retired from his last two challengers in las vegas he lost to mikhail pervalorakis 449 500 500 dollars in 520 dollars yeah and then the next round you know i'll tell you a funny story as an aside he lost to seku bangura in uh, charlottesville Mm-hmm. About ten, maybe even twelve years ago, fifteen years ago, um, somebody tipped me off to uh, Seku Bangor as a junior player who was living in Bradenton, and I spent a day with him for a Sports Illustrated story. 
who was just a great, lovely kid. Mm-hmm. He had a state ranking in the, the conceit of the story was he had a state ranking in tennis, golf, and chess. Wow. Uh, it was it was a great uh Sort of one, you know, one of these one-page offbeat stories. Nice to see um, he, he chose tennis. I believe he played uh, at the University of Florida. And uh, now he's ranked 336 is Sekou Bangura. Um, oh, my God. I'm dating myself. So he's 27 years old. So, yeah, this must have been about 10, 12 years ago. Um, he, he was a great kid. Glad to see sticking with uh, with tennis. I'm sure he has a, a bright future beyond the sport. But uh, Sekou Bangura can now say he beat uh, a former top 10 player, Jack Sock. And that just happened uh a few week. weeks ago yeah. in yeah in Charlottesville. Um, all right. Any uh, any anything else on your mind, tennis wise? Where uh, the women's season is kind of sort of over, except um, I, I was at uh, speaking of tennis and philanthropy. I um, there was a luncheon to raise funny for raise funds for the NYJTL yesterday, and a number of uh, players and figures in tennis were there. And we think the women's season is over, but there is an event in Houston that has attracted uh, a number of players. One of them, Cece Bellis. Nice to see her. Making a return. Injury. Another uh, a former podcast guest, Danielle Collins, will be in the field. Um, Carolyn Wozniacki is at Harvard Business School with uh, as as well as Bethany Maddox Sands. Falls an interesting time in uh, in this sport. Everyone kind of goes their own way. But uh, if you thought the women's tennis season was over, um, keep an eye on this Houston event because uh, there's some interesting storylines and some fine players in the field. And then obviously, still uh, a big men's event. Yeah. So. so uh, We'll have a little a little break. We'll have our Tuesday off season, but uh, for now yeah. we've got a little bit more to gobble up. But I actually enjoy um, seeing how different players, as you're saying, spend the off season. I think it tells you a little bit about where they are in their careers, what their um, body is feeling like mm-hmm. at, at that point in time. You know, I, for someone like Cece Bellis coming back hasn't played, she's ready to get out there and right. play. She's not going to be taking time off this off season. So it's always interesting how that ebb and flow uh leaks into the australian open right no and it, it also goes what we were talking about earlier about just dif- different players have different needs and different interests and some players say oh the, the season is too long there are too many events or too many obligations and other players say they're not enough opportunities i wish there were events every week so you know, daniel collins top you know this is a player gets seated at majors here, here it is uh mid-november and she'll be playing in houston so um anyway interesting sport but uh it was Good, good spending some time with, with Mark Knowles. We'll uh, we'll include a link to that, and w- you know what? While we're here, we will uh, include the NYJTL link as well because that was uh, a great fundraising event for a great program. And um, I know there's some some silent auction items that I suspect are still uh, available for for purchase if people want to make a contribution. There, this was our philanthropy podcast. I was going to say that. You like that? Took the words out of my mouth. Um, all right, that does it for this week. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks uh, everyone for listening. Keep the guest suggestions coming uh we'll do another one next week subscribe leave a review itunes stitcher wherever podcasts are sold and uh we'll do it again in seven days have a good week